Hey everyone, and welcome to the NCAST. I'm Guy Weissmantel, your host and Executive Vice President of Marketing here at NContracts. In this podcast, our subject matter experts from across the company will be talking with industry thought leaders about relevant topics and trends in compliance and risk management for financial institutions. You'll learn the latest tips and tools to manage risk in this ever-changing environment. Let's get started. Welcome to the NContracts NCAST, and today I've got two bankers that are clients of ours that are joining me to discuss results of a survey we co-published with C-Bank to really ascertain the state of compliance and what some of the issues and challenges are. Stay tuned. Those results will be published here by the end of the month. But in the meantime, let me introduce my two guests. First off, we have Denise Guerra. And Denise, welcome. And would you tell us a little bit about your, yourself and your background? Of course. Thank you for having me today. I am the Senior Vice President of Integrated Risk at Mid-Florida Credit Union in the great state of sunny Florida, if you were able to ascertain that from the name. We're about $5.6 billion in asset credit union. I've worked in compliance or risk essentially for the last 17 to 18 years. So my perspective will kind of come from a risk management enterprise risk management perspective today in regards to compliance. Great. Thank you. Esmeralda Rivas is my other guest. And Esmeralda, would you introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi. And thank you for, for having me too. I am with Mission Bank and I have been with this company for 14 years, two years in compliance, specifically in compliance, um, but always in compliance. And um, how big is the bank that you work for is Mission? Yeah, so we actually just crossed the billion dollar mark late last year. So we are right. Yes, super exciting. I think we're at 1.4, 1.5 at this time. Great. So we've got two different perspectives on the scale because even for me as a former regulator, I can really see the difference between you know what we're looking at between a one billion dollar institution and what those expectations are at the five billion. So I think again, we've got a lot of great information. So while we're going to talk about the survey results, Denise, would you give me a little bit of your background in risk management, what you're doing, how you ended up in compliance? Not everybody grows up wanting to be a compliance officer. That is a loaded question. I can definitely tell you that five-year-old Denise is not doodling compliance in her coloring books. That's for sure. I kind of fell in compliance probably the same way of everyone's origin story. Someone quit. You got called in the office the next day and said, hey, we think you can do this part of the job. What do you think about this compliance piece? And then you just kind of hit the ground running and 17 17, 18 years later, you turn around. So I started at a smaller credit union, about 4 million in asset size as a compliance officer, training officer, marketing person, all the hats that they could essentially put on the hat rack. Then I moved to a $100 million asset size organization, essentially doing compliance, BSA, you know, your normal run-of-the-mill compliance. And then we merged with Mid-Florida Credit Union and kind of was able to create this department in my current credit union that handles vendor management, third-party management, enterprise risk management, and business continuity management. So we're really excited to kind of see what the evolution of risk has become over the last five to 10 years and kind of how it's spiderwebbed out into all these different areas and able to bring my compliance knowledge in. I did have a question for you though, as a returning podcast representative, maybe that's the title I should give myself. Do you guys have like a punch card? Like if I'm on the podcast for like five times, can I get free ice cream or? 
You name the price and I'll get it to you. Well, <laughs> within reason. But yeah, no, I, we really appreciate you. I forgot that you've been on a, uh, one of the podcasts before. So thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll check with Eileen to see where my punch card is and who who needs to give me that that stamp. Great, great. Well, thank you, Denise. Esmeralda, could you give me that kind of same background? How did you end up compliance? I know you said you've just been doing it about two years at this current institution. So how did this wonderful job fall in your lap? Yeah, right. I'm very similar to Denise, but I, I will say it in a different way, in a different perspective. So I had been in central operations for about 12 years in a lot of different capacities and also managing the systems, the operation system. So the core system and all the other products that we have for deposits. And I told my supervisor at the time, I said, look, I'm kind of over this job. I said, I want a, I want a challenge. I need something different. And same thing like Denise, the compliance officer left. She actually moved from compliance to BSA officer. So she, she had a move within the bank and that compliance position was open for several months. When I saw a post, I said, oh, good luck, right? We, we <laughs> somebody good, right? Never did I think, oh my gosh, I, I want to be the compliance officer, but I had a really, really good supervisor, a mentor who saw what I didn't see in myself. He said, look, you may not have the compliance experience. Our bank is small enough where we have, I'm over the deposits as well as lending. We're only commercial so we don't have mortgages and stuff like that. So he said, look, you have about 60% of it. Because of course, I doubt myself. I'm not qualified, all these things, right? But he he took the time. He took me to lunch and said, look, you have these qualities right here. And because you have these really strong qualities, you're going to succeed. It doesn't matter what it is. So I, I thought about it, prayed about it, and then I, I applied for it. So I just, again, super proud that somebody took their time to look and otherwise I would have never been in this position. That's fantastic. And you joined me yesterday on the recording that we had on attracting and retaining compliance talent. And I forgot to mention one of those things because, and I want to share that for everybody that's listening today is just as your example alluded to, when you're supervising people, I think it's one of those things that it behooves all of us to recognize that talent and draw it out in other people for that they continue being an asset at the bank, because that is part of that engagement. And I can tell you, even while I was working at the OCC for 32 years, the best jobs came from somebody that said, hey, I think you should apply and do this position. And the same thing that you mentioned, Esmeralda, those gremlins got into my head. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I don't know if I can do this or not. And I jumped into it and I loved it. And so I like paying that back now. And I really want to encourage other people to do that as we move forward. I also wanted to overlay a point in what Esmeralda said, too. I think that and it kind of speaks to you kind of find yourself in this compliance position and you kind of feel a little out of your depth in regards to, I can't do this because it seems like such a large ball to get your hands around, but know that what you brought, brought you to the place that you're in now as a compliance officer is the knowledge that you've kind of amassed from your financial institution. So compliance is really just about taking these subject matter experts, like these subjects that you've become an expert in through the different positions that you've held in your financial institution and 
applying the regulation to it. So if you're sitting here in this pot in this podcast and you're thinking, oh man, how am I, how am I going to do this? How am I going to succeed in compliance? Recognize the fact that you have a lot of that knowledge in place. Like Esmeralda has such a strong background in cybersecurity, which we're going to talk about as one of the concerns, compliance concerns. So know that you have that, that foundation there. Right. Well, you know, you bring up a really kind of good point is where do you kind of get, and I'm going to jump to, you know, one of the other survey questions is how do you keep up with regulatory information and trends? Do you use peer groups? Do you use subscriptions to, you know, again, like end contracts or other things, keeping up with our updates? Or do you attend conferences? Is it social media? Just Google feeds? Let me pitch it over to you, Esmeralda. What do you use to kind of stay up to date with, you know, uh, info and trends? So for me, uh, prior to end contracts, because now we've we are using the end comply software, but prior to that, it's all of the different news feeds from the OCC, though we're not regulated by OCC. I like to see it also FDIC and then Fed. We're regulated by Fed and also our state. So I have regular uh, feeds from them. We also use a attorney firm here in California who they have monthly seminars and also two to three webinars per month. So I literally attend all of them. They give us a federal perspective as well as the state perspective. Oh, great. Great. And Denise, how about for you? Yes to everything that you mentioned, all of those things that you mentioned. I will also tack on getting really good at Google. You know, there have been so many different things that when it comes across my desk, I'm like, I literally know nothing about that. But you would be so surprised as to how much you could throw in in regards to Googling what it is you're looking for, finding a way to kind of hone your key search and your keywords and those type of things. Using those resources like C-Bank, Bankers Online to kind of search those message boards not many problems in compliance are new problems. Someone somewhere, some on, on some mountain somewhere has experienced the same compliance problem that you are. And then I would also tack on leveraging the subject matter experts in your organization. So all of those individual people, all of those management people in your organization, they have their own expectation. They have their own resources that maybe they're signed up for because your inbox can't handle anymore. Um, And creating those relationships with those management um, and and knowing that, hey, I want to know what you know. And so when something comes by, when there's a cybersecurity risk, when there's something in lending, when you're hearing of a class action lawsuit, I, I want to know those things. So kind of creating that back and forth conversation is another method or stream of information as well. Good. Well, that's consistent with the findings. What I'm looking at here is subscriptions and conferences rank really highly, no matter what the size of the institution that people are using to stay abreast of trends. And it really focuses on those areas. The other thing is peer groups. Do you use and talk to other compliance officers that you know, or other risk managers, people that you know in similar positions? Are you aware of others at other institutions that you you kind of phone a friend? Yeah. The great thing about credit unions is that you know, credit unions are founded on this idea of co-op, right? So we're I founded on this idea of, you know, helping each other and sharing information. And yes, some information is proprietary. Some information is kind of needs to stay in 
in the confines of the organization. But a lot of times you can kind of share feedback and, and thought and conversation and implementation strategies, especially for new regulations or things that are coming down with your peers in the organization. It'll help tamp down that imposter syndrome that I think that you find a lot in compliance, right. where you feel like there's no way that you could have a true understanding of what this reg is saying. And it's such a big job and it's such a big thing for the credit union. And how can you possibly do it? That's where your peers come into play is as far as kind of making sure, giving you that reassurance. It's like, oh yeah, we're on the right track. Great. I mean, again, those are just excellent resources, picking up the phone and call. And again, I will say this as, as, you know, again, former regulator, it was always, I appreciated when I got calls from the banks that I worked with closely and that I was supervising. So the point person. So if you know somebody like that, develop that relationship with your regulator is always a good thing to let them know what what challenges you're facing, what are the issues, and even sometimes asking, am I looking at this correctly? Do I understand this nuance? And so- Yeah, that's a fantastic point. We've actually leveraged our external auditing firms and relationships when we're kind of trying to wrap our hands around something. They'll also have resources too. And we've reached out to NCUA who were regulated by quite a number of times kind of having the, hey, hypothetically, help me walk through this conversation. Yeah. Well, good. Esmeralda, I'm going to ask you a question now and then come back to you, Denise, on this one. So if you had the ability to have a genie and make a wish (laughs) that impacted your job or compliance, what would that wish be? Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, you're asking that a little bit different, but I, I think that it would be having everybody in my organization understand that compliance is more than checking a box. Not not that I'm throwing anybody under the bus, but compliance is honestly more than checking a box. And I I want to see people feel passionate about compliance the way that I do. So compliance generally sounds like, oh man, it's a, a bump on the road. Now I can't execute because now I have to make sure the box is checked, but it's more than that. So when I first took the role, I had a a coach, a professional coach that put it in the perspective that has really changed the way that I look at compliance. He said that I'm the bank's protector. I am protecting the bank and I am protecting our consumers. And so when I heard it that way, now I have this extra dose of passion for what I'm doing, more meaning for what I'm doing. And I, again, if I had a genie, I would say that that passion also be sprinkled among everybody (laughs) in the organization. Oh, no, that's great. And, and that really gets to, you know, one of the hearts of those issues is establishing a compliance culture. And we, again, we talked about this yesterday in that webinar. So I think, again, that's good when it, top down, bottom up really understands those challenges. So, Denise, I'm going to ask you that same question. Now you get to rub that bottle and the genie's going to come out. What do you want? I'm going to ask myself what happens at the different points in my life to arrive at a genie with magical powers. And all he's asking me about is compliance. I'm going to, I'm going to take a a thought about that. I would say, I think Esmeralda's point is going to be, you know, top of the dome in regards to what I would want. I want some of those passion sprinkles that she's talking about, but I would also say fair and helpful regulation, regulation that's really intended to hit the 
the point that it's trying to make is in regards to consumer protection and not serve as a cumbersome blanket essentially to the organization as far as being able to balance business need with compliance and regulation. We all have members. We all have consumers. We want to make sure that they're protected. Our job is to not try to defraud our membership, especially in the credit union world. And having regulation that falls in line with that in a way that is actually intentional and speaks to the reason behind it, I think would be probably the second wish that I would put on. Good. Well, you know, again, I think, again, you you summarize that by really, or at least I'll summarize that by saying it gets down to really understanding what the culture is. And I can tell you again, as, as a former regulator, regulations come about because there were problems in the industry that people weren't policing themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're like, you know what, this is the way customers should be treated. And this is what we're going to be doing. And, and we obviously saw kind of a, a reaction to that or a backlash back when the CFPB was created and, and the purpose for that. So it gets down to putting into a culture of compliance, but also, Esmeralda, you just touched on this really well, looking at compliance as the defender of the bank, whereas a lot of time, many people look at compliance as you're the no people. Mm-hmm. You know, you're telling me, no, I can't do this. Or like, you're telling me to watch out for these things. But if you turn that around, instead of being the no person, no, I'm the one that's saying, this is our risk tolerance. This is what we're doing. This is how we're operating. And this is what the rules of the road say. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's something that we get to do in risk a lot, which I think is one of my favorite aspects of it. I essentially, I kind of equate it as to going out to a playground with your management team and kind of saying, hey, that slide has been in the sun for a really long time, so it's going to be hot. And, oh, you see that broken bottle in the sandbox over there? There's going to be some shards of glass in that broken bottle. Go play on this playground. These are just the things that I'm telling you that you should be able to work out for. If you want to slide your butt down that slide because you think it's important to the business need, go for it. But recognize the fact that there's going to be some possible consequences, compliance risk, reputation risk, strategic risk, all those things that come along with that in the vein of, a hot metal slide on your shorted bum. So, yeah. you know, those are the, that that's the kind of thing where it's like, you see that you're protecting the credit union, but also you're really trying to drive home that point of responsibility for compliance and responsibility for risk and taking, it should, it should, we should not be risk adverse. We should be allowing ourselves to work within the tolerance that's been established. So uh, going back to the survey results, when I was asking about the genie wish, the the most kind of frequent uh, kind of comment in there was really realizing that everyone wants others to recognize within the institution that this is a team sport. Mm-hmm. And, and as well, you, you know, hit that, you know, really well. Others would say that we don't have regulations or that there were fewer regulations to kind of manage and what you were talking about, but really understanding them and, and that, you know, uh, everybody, there is some, you know, especially for larger institutions, want more resources in a bigger budget. And you both are coming from smaller institutions relatively, and it's hard. So how many people are in your kind of uh, compliance department as well? I think it's just you and maybe one other. Yeah, it's just myself and one other employee. And we're also taking on the audit function, the internal audit function, not 100% because we do outsource some of it. But we are on the borderline of, of needing more resources. The really nice thing is that software like and contracts really helps with that. Oh, that's great. Denise, what about for yourself? In my risk department, where again, we handle vendor management, ERM, business continuity management, it's myself and a team of three. 
Our compliance department has a team of two. I mean, we have a separate BSA area and a separate internal audit area. We're five and a half billion asset um, to give some context. But I would speak to Esmeralda's point in that, you know, this is something we take a look at in risk and vendor management. And as well as when I was in compliance for a smaller credit union is where can you get the best value and dollar for what you're spending in regards to your compliance dollars? So a software like end contracts that has that, you know, regular regulatory feed allows you to create action plans to farm that action plan out to the organization with a call and return, which is, is a pretty cost-effective way to add to your, I put that in quotations for you. So if you were listening, that didn't see to add to your compliance staff without really adding to your compliance staff, you got to think, how can I work smarter and not harder? So that's easier for me to say as a former regulator, and that's usually <laughs> the things I talk about. But it's it's great to hear from you know two clients' perspectives how our products are benefiting you and, and how they've helped you you know evaluate compliance for your size of institutions. And it would seem to me that it make even more sense if you're even smaller and have less resources. You need these automated tools. One of the bywords that I just happened to read was on a recent uh, testimony by the acting controller, Michael Sue at the OCC. And when he testified on the Hill, he used an important word or adjective. He talked about efficient regulation. And, and efficient regulation is very different from saying, or efficient risk regulation and risk management. That's very different from saying, oh, you have a good risk management or bad. It's not a binary choice how effectively and efficiently you're doing it. So you really help to address that. So thank you. I appreciate that. I just wanted to bring in that nuance. So the other study survey results, and you both kind of typify that, I'm really surprised that it's really impressive that almost uh, over 40% of the respondents, no matter the breakdown in size of institution, people that have been doing the respondents have been doing compliance for more than 15 years. And especially when you look at that six and greater, you've got a majority of people who are doing that. And it kind of speaks to either I know my job really well. It doesn't say how many institutions they've been with, but they've been doing compliance for a while. And you kind of find like, all right, I've got this. I know what I'm doing and, and I can either become really good at my job or even more marketable. So you both mentioned, Denise, just to kind of refresh people, how yeah. long have you been doing risk uh, in compliance? Uh, I've been doing compliance for 18 years. I believe that that's what we calculated a couple of days ago. Yeah, 18 years. And I will say that it takes a few years, and Esmeralda can probably speak to this, to kind of get your compliance footing and to kind of figure out who you want to be as a compliance individual. So that's probably why I think there's so much longevity in, in the industry, because when you figure that out, you don't want to, you don't want to lose it. I, I'm not going to go home and say that, you know, I have a passion. I'm not reading regulation at my bedside table um, right. or as far as my hobbies are concerned, but I definitely feel the passion in regards to what I do for my position in how we're able to contribute to the organization overall. And when you have that culture you're talking about, you have that management team, you have those resources that you need, it really comes together in this great way that you really feel like you're able to protect and, you know, the organization and make it better and really have that shift in thinking. So those are the things that kind of keep me where I'm at, where I'm like, no, I want to do this because you kind of see that, that shift. Esmeralda, you, you've been two years in compliance, but 14 years with the bank. How is it so far? And you see yourself staying in a compliance role. Yeah, so I, I definitely have the, the purpose 
I think I absolutely have honed into that. What am I really doing? Again, the bank's protector, our consumer's protector. So I, I definitely have that. And that's what drives me. That's what creates that passion. I can't say that it will be a forever thing, not because I don't like protecting. Um, but I, I think I still need a little bit more. And I think, Denise, I how long did it take you to know, like, this is it? <laughs> Check with me next week. <laughs> I mean, change is inevitable. I would always say that throughout my career, there's always been these things where I've just always said, yes, I've just always taken that next step and that next opportunity. When I started as the baby compliance officer, would I see myself kind of leading this risk management area? No, that's not where I kind of saw this. I kind of, you know, had conversations with the husband that was kind of like, you know, we'll do this for a couple of years. I'll learn a new skill set. Maybe through my first exam with, you know, not crying too much and was like, I can, I can do this. And now I'm, I'm in a position where I really feel like I can contribute to my organization in a way that I, I want to do this as long as I can. But, you know, life has those changes and those bumps in the road. Right. And I think in compliance, you have good, ba- good days, bad days, good weeks, bad weeks, good months, bad months. So I really kind of think that it just depends on where you get it in the cycle, but I, there for every bad day, there's a good day in regards to kind of seeing where you're at in compliance. So with that high correlation that people that have been doing compliance for six to six years or more, and, and that was the biggest percentage of the groups, it's also really interesting to look at 60% of those kind of responders on a different question are not looking at doing a career change. And so it it just kind of really kind of the data gets into it, like people get into this like this or realize I'm really good at this. And you gain that over time. I I can share with you over my perspective. And it's hard to believe that I worked 32 years for the OCC and I can still remember my first year on the job where everything was coming at me. And I'm like, I I don't know even what they're talking about. Why am I going to make sense of this and what you're doing to the point where I'm representing the agency and I'm teaching bank directors. And now I can geek out with the two of you (laughs) in terms of risk management or compliance and talking about how do you do effective risk management and, and compliance supervision? So great information there. So we were all impacted by the COVID and uh, the pandemic. Did you or your institution work at home? How was that? How were you able to get the work done? What were those challenges around that? Esmeralda, I'll start with you. Yeah, so so I was sent home on March 16th, um, like a lot of people in, in our state, in our, in our country. So it's very interesting because I know just talking to different people in general, not necessarily compliance officers, but they found a lot of challenges where I, on the other hand, I think I got innovation out of this because I had to figure out how do I still do these reviews, but now I don't have a printer at home. It was so super basic, right? And so we got very, very creative, like, gosh, I always have to hit print on this report because there was no way to get an electronic file. So a lot of innovation for sure, which is I'm bringing, I'm back in the office and it's still here. It wasn't a year deal. It's it's permanent. And the other really cool thing, again, speaking for innovation, 
we created a lot of reports that extracted specific data from our core system, where now instead of mining through data, now this report pulls out exactly what we need. So that created a lot of efficiencies for us. And I just see us continuing to move that direction. So were those processes or systems there you just hadn't looked at or knew about and the pandemic and not being able to print forced kind of having to look at it? Or did you have to work with one of your vendors to build those types of reports? So um, when I was working in the central operations department, in my time there, I reduced paper by 70%. So I'm absolutely go green and I'm 100% efficiency. I think the biggest struggle for me was that I was still new. I was only a year in, in my compliance position. So I did things the way that they were. And so mentally, I knew I was going to change some things, streamline some stuff. And But I think that that just gave me the push to do it then. I, I had no choice. I couldn't right. go to the office and print. So I think it just really pushed me. But as far as uh, vendors, I knew how to create reports because I did that in my central operations role. See, and again, so it pays to have that kind of multidisciplinary approach uh, and, you know, to your career ladder, you understand the different workings of the institution and how you can get information. Exactly. What about for you, Denise? We had a little bit of a different story in regards to our pandemic experience and response. We don't really have a culture from work from home in our organization. We do have flexibility. Um, Obviously, I'm in my home environment right now working and and coming to in regards to this podcast. But as far as having large scale infrastructure in place to be able to kind of move the entire workforce home, that wasn't something that we had at our disposal, Um, nor is it something that there's a huge appetite for in, in our organization. We had remained in the office for the most part, kind of figuring out ways to be effective in what can we do with something that we've never really kind of experienced in this realm before in regards to risk or compliance and how can we be effective there? So we ended up doing, in my area, we ended up kind of tackling vendors and seeing what our vendors response was in regards to risk. And and if that risk picture of as far as vendors and business resiliency was changed in any way due to the pandemic, we had to kind of create a lot of policy from those environments that did kind of turn into work from home environments as we created infrastructure, we also kind of had to create policy that created the playground in which that work from home pandemic situation could happen in. And then also kind of help triage with a lot of the different regulations that were coming down in regards to PPP, you know, right. the moratoriums, the evictions, those type of things, and just kind of help the organization respond to and create a lot of ways to move through that efficiently and with as much compassion as we could in regards to our membership. I'll also give the other side of the fence because I know that there's a lot of conversation in regards to what is a more effective a work from home environment and an in-work environment. And I'll say from the risk perspective and from the compliance perspective, I think that there is a conversation or an argument to be made that having that face-to-face interaction is extremely helpful in that compliance and risk environment. To your point, Raphael, that you made before, a lot of times we're kind of seen that there's that department of no. I had one CEO one time, not my current CEO, that referred to me as the dream killer. He got a a plaque for me at Christmas. I have a full page diary entry devoted all about it. Being able to be face-to-face to kind of share that smile, to have those mannerisms, to kind of convey that 
I am your partner in this. I am your team player in this where I'm not saying no, I'm saying that slide is hot. Let's figure out a way to get you down it. I feel like sometimes those conversations happen and flow better in person because you can feel that person's intention. Oh, that's great. You bring up really good points there and, and we could spend a lot more time on that. In fact, I might have to have you back on a bit, uh, another <laughs> podcast on business continuity and kind of earn that other punch card. There. I say it's another punch card. <laughs> exactly. But the, the other question I want to ask is you were both talking about, and we kind of talked about this in the beginning, having that culture of compliance. So I see in, in the, the survey results that people felt that compliance, their involvement in strategic planning with the organization, and I'm also assuming that's looking at new products and services, they were somewhat satisfied to very satisfied were the, the largest group of respondents that were both right around 30%. Did you do you feel at your institution that you guys are involved in what you're doing with looking at new products and services where the organization wants to grow? So with that strategic planning or describe to me how you are, if you are. Yeah. So in in my department, in our bank, I am part of the leadership team. So that that to me speaks volumes because the leadership team are really the ones that are coming up with the strategic ideas and initiatives. And even our policy dictates that the compliance officer will review new products and new services, marketing material and that sort of stuff. So absolutely critical that that we are involved in that process. Okay, great. Denise? I'll speak to kind of my experience over the last 18 years. And I went to a conference one time um, where the speaker was incredible and he was giving great points. And he kind of said, I started at the organization I was in and I just started inviting myself to meetings. And me as a a new compliance person and a new risk person, I kind of racked my brain and said, the meetings that I would need to go to are, are there, I'm not even allowed on the floor that those meetings are held on. So obviously this is not going to be a good place for me to kind of make my position in regards to why compliance and risk are so important. Right. So I would say that, yes, compliance and risk should definitely be involved in these conversations in a strategic place. In my current role and in my current environment, I absolutely am considered in those ways. But you have to find your own way and your own niche and understand your own organization's culture to really find how to get yourself that seat at the table. And one of the most invaluable pieces of advice that I ever received was go to lunch, go to lunch in your organization and make those friends, even in departments that you will not, you don't think that you'll ever interact with. You'll never know when that will pay dividends for you. And not that you should create friendships or whatever, just based on their return dividends, but it creates that, that synergy within the organization and this feeling of, I'm working with Denise. I'm not working with the compliance department. I'm not working with the risk department. I'm working for, and I want to help Denise. And I want to help the person that I'm working with because I know the struggles and the things that they're experiencing on a daily basis. It also gives you the perspective of what's happening in their environment and how you might need to reframe your compliance picture to assist better. Right. So uh, I think, again, those are really good points and talking about, you know, having that face-to-face conversation. And you talked about this even with the pandemic, and I really think it's key. 
And this is where like a, a platform like Zoom and that we're on right now transforms it because it is much easier to have a discussion when we can see each other and we can see body language and facial reactions and, and what's going on there to kind of get that buy-in. But I'm also a big proponent of contacting and building and developing those relationships. When I, I would typically go, if somebody if I needed a resource, instead of just emailing them, I would typically go to that person and say, hey, get to talking to them. How have you been? You know, just a regular chit chat. And then like, hey, I need help with this. Can you do this for me? And 90% of the time they would say yes. And it's much easier to say no when it's a heartless, faceless email, even though <laughs> you know the person, can you do this? No, I'm really busy. And it ends there. And so I think the culture is morphing, but these platforms like this have really helped to kind of bridge things in the period where people were working remotely. And even in my current position, I work from home if I'm not traveling. So I'm used to kind of, all right, I'm working wherever. And I pretty much did that as an examiner as well. I was constantly on the road going from bank to bank to bank. So you learn to do that, but uh, really good examples. I want to switch to some of the top risks. And so Esmeralda, you know, from your perspective, what are the top two or three risks that you see they're facing the industry, not just your bank, because I don't want to put your bank on the spot, but, you know, when you're looking at this compliance area, what are those risks? Yeah, so I think the the biggest topics, biggest risk that I can think of, and it's more because they are not clear. I think that's why I'm calling them biggest. Diversity, include uh, equity and inclusion, and ESG. And so these, again, I'm only saying the highest risk because there is very little guidance um, to that. And we in our organization are talking about DE&I a lot. We think that we're doing pretty good as far as having diverse workforce. But again, it's one of those things like, are we just checking the box or are we doing this out of passion? And what is that going to look like when the regulation does come out? What are they going to say? You have to have at least five people of this background, you know? So it's just, it's a little, it's a little scary only because it's unknown still. Denise, what what do you see as kind of a top risk facing the industry? Well, not to be a spoiler alert for you, but you did give us the list of the things that they voted on. So I would say that the list that Raphael is going to go over in just a second are are, are pretty the heavy hitter. So we're going to focus on things that are outside of that list. I think that Esmeralda's point in regards to governance and sustainability is an excellent one. We actually just put a sustainability charter, a sustainability message in our risk charter and policy in regards to you know, how we're going to kind of take a look at those environmental, social, and economic things that we're going to kind of tackle. And, and what is our responsibility as an organization in, in responding to the world as it evolves around us? The other thing that I will say is disruptors in your marketplace and emerging technology. So fintechs, for one, um, would definitely be something where, you know, we're kind of taking on a lot of things to enhance our online platform and to kind of reach members, the different generational members, the different members that are impacted by the pandemic. But that technology hasn't necessarily gone through its entire life cycle in regards to being vetted by regulators and how regulators are going to interact with it and how regulators are going to see it. So how is your organization going to do so? What risk is it going to take on? And really trying to understand those risks that are present within any type of technology and then disruptive technology. Who is taking a portion of your organization's 
overall piece and share of the pie. And then one last asterisk uh, I'll put on there is privacy. I think privacy is going to be something that is going to be a huge thing that's considered across the United States, just speaking to Esmeralda in California, depending on how many states kind of enact their own policy, their own privacy policy, and what that looks like once it becomes kind of a federal position. So let me just address where you were talking about those unknowns, and especially, you know, coming from a regulator, because banks are in the business and credit unions, financial institutions are in the business of managing risk day in and day out. So my advice is always don't overthink it. It's do the right thing. What what is what does it look like for you? What is this saying for you? Again, there, there's going to be it's going to be a while before those are clearly defined. But even I could spend probably another half hour talking about ESG and how banks are already doing a lot of that. Again, those are kind of key things. BSA compliance reviews, cyber privacy, data, and fair lending are really some of the bigger issues that were identified in those reports. And again, I appreciate your jumping outside the box in the East to kind of look at some of those since you knew what those results were going to be. But there are other issues and challenges that we're all facing. So in the next five minutes as we're wrapping up, any last thoughts that that you have about what financial institutions or what financial institutions could do? You mentioned that about looking at improving systems and tools. Any other thoughts, Esmeralda? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me, like, and you touched on this earlier, is really paying it forward. So a lot of us are in positions where we would have never been if we had not had somebody else believe and push us. And so really helping out, I want to pay it forward. I want to be able to speak to a baby compliance officer and encourage them. I think that the networks, the different networks, and reaching out to different financial institutions is key. I I know a lot of my colleagues, they have worked at different financial institutions. So I go and say, hey, what's your compliance officer's name? Uh, and I, I just connect with them. So out of everything, key takeaway is developing those connections with other professionals and also paying it forward. Oh, that, that's great. So it warms my heart in terms of hearing you say that, because I think it's one of the best gifts we can do for others. Denise, how do you follow that? <laughs> um, I was thinking when she was talking that we need some kind of like compliance Tinder app, you know, swipe left, swipe right. Yeah. Not their, their <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. And just allow us to connect a network. The biggest takeaway that I would give you is to try to figure out who you are as a compliance officer, who you are as a risk officer, and how you want to help and serve your organization. Are you the compliance officer that's really trying to take the regulation from a black and white standpoint and kind of be dogmatic in regards to your enforcement of that that regulation in the organization? Are you trying to be more of that collaborative partner that really helps kind of shift the mindset in the organization and really challenge thought is to the who, what, when, where, and why we're doing it. And then really leveraging those relationships in that organization, finding ways to make your job more efficient and easier. And the easiest path to do that is creating those relationships and leveraging those subject matter experts in the organization that can kind of help serve as your posse. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, when you're all going out there to scrap on the playground, making sure that you have your posse with you to kind of help you and protect you as well in your, in your area. 
Great, great. Well, this has been a great conversation. We've already filled up an entire hour just talking amongst ourselves and the survey oh, wow. already just unrehearsed, un- unedited. And so I really appreciate your, your perspectives. This has really helped. I think this will be invaluable for others that are listening to this podcast uh, down the road. So I really want to thank you and appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Hey everyone, that wraps up another great episode of the NCAST, where we are able to talk with people on the front lines of risk and compliance across the financial services industry. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And if you're not subscribed yet, we invite you to do so on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you soon.